Let's go ahead and get started with uh, the teaching part. But Steve, why don't you open for us in a word of prayer? Certainly. Father, we do look forward to your second coming. I think it's soon. We're very excited about that. Let that be our motivation to tell others about you, that they can see our joy in anticipation and that you would be glorified in all things. I do pray for this time that uh, uh, you would open up your word, speak through Ray, and that it would be clear to us that we would hear and then that we would do. So we humble ourselves before you and thank you immensely for what you are doing in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Steve. This morning, we will look at Romans 12, at the heart. This is the heart of Romans. We're preparing for Valentine's Day, and somehow we'll prepare for the Super Bowl as well, right? Hey, uh, before you leave the gifts, yes, uh, Ray. I'm going to review I a little know. bit. I'll review it. Well, I noticed, I just wanted to comment. I noticed in reading the stuff, in going through the reading that you've, uh, you know, given us to get to read through the Bible. Oh, yes. It looked like to me that uh, actually, uh, you know, we we think about uh, the Spirit coming and going with Old Testament uh, believers, but it looked like to me that the priests were given a gift of wisdom. Yes. And not only that, but if you read through the uh, building and the preparation for the tabernacle, they were given wisdom, the gift. That's what I meant. Yeah. That's what I was talking about. In fact, that's the Hebrew word, hakma, hakma, that's wisdom, which wisdom in that broader sense means skill. And in their case, skill of craftsmanship. Whereas uh, in the book of Proverbs, hakamah is skill to be able to live life more fruitfully, effectively. So, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't talking, though, about the, that, that uh, example that you just gave, which I noticed, because that would seem to be, to, to be temporary since the, it, was just, it was related to the building of the temple, but the priests themselves yes. were given the wisdom. Yeah. Good. Yeah, very good. And by the way, those of you that are reading this coming week, you're scheduled to get into probably the hardest reading where people get bogged down, the book of Leviticus. But hang in there. In fact, did I send an outline last year? I might resend it if I did. If not, I'll send a new one. So it'll help you get through the book. I like that. Okay. Well, this morning, let's get into the book of Romans and continue, beginning in uh, chapter 12, verse 9, an interesting passage. I'll tell you a little more when we get closer to it. I'll give you a little review from last time. But we're dealing with believers again, obviously, the whole book, I believe. I don't think anyone questions whether 12 through the end is written to believers. We have lots of exhortations relating to the Christian walk, Christian life, and we'll talk a little bit in detail concerning that. But the parts that some people think may be addressed to unbelievers may be chapters 1, 2, and 3, where God is describing man's condemnation, but it's written in such a way that I think only believers really can understand it. He uses theological language But I take the whole book as written to a believing audience, both Jew and Gentile, who needed to understand all of the doctrines, including those dealing with condemnation, to be prepared for the provision of God's righteousness. God providing a way to have access to himself. Paul uses the word justification at the heart of it. But he also deals with sanctification. And then we also saw chapters 9 through 11, God vindicating his righteousness concerning the nation of Israel and Jewish people in general, the Old Testament people of God. What about them? Well, God has not forgotten them. And that's the 
main part of the book of Romans, well, I don't know if you can say main part because this is extremely important. How does it uh, work itself out in everyday living? The application beginning in chapter 12 to the middle of chapter 15. How does this righteousness of God work itself out in everyday living? And uh, how does it, what does it look like? What does it look like when you experience everyday everyday experiences. And we looked at the beginning of chapter 12, first two verses. I think it obviously begins with God, and you have to have that relationship right. In other words, you need to be willing to walk with him. I think that's at the heart of it, moment by moment, using Jewish imagery like a sacrifice laid on an altar, available to whatever God may have at any moment, at any time, not a dead one, but a living one, set apart, set apart from the world. In other words, actively resisting, conforming to the world, and in the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. And once you are consistently walking that way, you're going to have an impact on the church. And what does the church look like, or how does righteousness in the individual believer look like in the church? I think it looks like the ministry of everyone involved through their spiritual gift. We spent three weeks looking at that. Last week was the third week, and we're still in the passage beginning in the middle of it, beginning in verse 9, which gives us another aspect of what it looks like. And eventually we'll get to chapter 13. What does it look like? What does righteousness worked out look like in society? The heart of that is we are citizens that are submissive to the governing authorities and submissive to one another. And then in chapters 14 through the middle of 15, he deals with relationships in terms of Christian liberty, the C stands for Christian there on the on the slide. So on uh, in an outline form, we're looking at the application to God, verses 1 and 2. We've moved on to the application to the church, 3 through 8. And the first part of it, actually 3 through 8, is the exercise of spiritual gifts. Application to the church, 3 through 21. And uh, just a quick review of what we looked at. And then Jim asked a question for those of you that are just tuning in here. We've been looking at spiritual gifts. And since we have, the we is every single one. We stress that throughout. Since we have gifts that differ. So there's unity in the body. We saw that in verses 4 and 5. But there's also diversity in terms of how we function and how we relate to one another. And it's dependent on how God has gifted us. And each one, I think, is individual, unique, very different. So we shouldn't compare ourselves with one another. Even if we have similar gifting, God is going to use them in slightly different ways. And I introduced to you the idea that I've got the gift of eccentricity along with the gift of teaching. And in that eccentricity, there's a a lot of uniqueness in that. So we have different gifts and they're given not according to our natural abilities or talents. They're given according to the grace given to us again, us, all of us. And if that's not clear enough, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So that's what it should look like. The functioning of the church should be seen by anyone that is observing, whether inside or outside, the exercising of gifts, people relating to one another and ministering to one another by grace, according to how God has gifted us. And I stressed last time that uh, you, every single one of every born-again believer, is gifted. And I like to use athletic imagery, especially on Super Bowl Sunday. So here's these aren't the ones that are in the bowl, but athletic imagery. 
I learned every life principle from uh, playing football. Some of you have heard that before. You can learn virtually every life principle by being involved in not just football, but all sports. In fact, that's, I think that's the reason God uh, created football in the first place, is that we may learn all of these things. What else do you think God was doing on that seventh day but uh, watching? At any rate, we're... Right, right. Hmm? Did I hear a protest uh, there? Yeah, right, Ray. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, does that, does that mean hit them hard and hit them high as a biblical principle? Yes, yes, with the gospel. <laughs> hit them in every way with the gospel, exactly. And along those lines, I stressed that Ephesians 4.7 stresses this idea of each one. In other words, everyone has a gift and everyone should be exercising. 1 Peter 4.10, each one again. 1 Corinthians 12.6-7, to each one is given a gift. And the passage that we were looking at, Romans 12.6, again, each of us. So that was what I tried to stress last time. Gifts are supernatural enablements for service of our Lord or for the benefit of our Lord or in uh, being utilized by our Lord. So when we put ourselves on that altar, making ourselves available to him, we are going to be used by him according to his plan and in his way and through his means, and his means is supernatural enablement in order to function in the body of Christ. So that is the uh, exercise of spiritual gifts, three through eight. That's where we left off. And now a broader way that righteousness can be seen in the church. In fact, what did Jesus say? They will know us by what? They will know us by our love. In other words, the world, the unbelieving world, and even other believers will see a distinct characteristic of believers as we exercise love. So that's the rest of the chapter. I summarize it uh, using the broad category of love, although there's a lot of other probably individual items in uh, the chapter as well. But you could view them, even though they're distinct, you could view them as examples or you could view them as components of the broader category of love. How, what does love look like? And I think some of the individual exhortations or encouragements that we'll look at are expressions of love. So 9 through 21, and I break it into two parts, 9 through 13. And, and by the way, it's hard. It's a little harder to outline this. We'll talk a little bit about the grammar, and I might see if Nate and some of you... Uh, Greek students maybe have some additional insights, but it's not easy to, to outline and it's not easy to even diagram. Uh, the translators take some liberties. I think they do a good job of trying to communicate what the essence of the passages are, but I'll tell you a little bit about the grammar in a moment. So how do you break it down into two parts? I think 9 through 13, and you could debate this. It's not crystal clear, but I've called it within the church. That seems to be more of the emphasis, at least, as opposed to exercising love outside of the church. So that's at least the way I've outlined it, and I'm open to revision if you have more insights into the passage there. So first of all, we have, I've broken it into two parts there seems to be three sentences here. I've grouped the first two. They're a little bit different than the third one. The first two, verses 9 and 10, so we have two sentences I've grouped together. I've called them essential exhortations. And again, I'm open to some of your input, those of you that do a little bit of outlining. You might break it down a little bit differently. So I've broken the first part as essential exhortations. And uh, verse 9, supernatural love is the first one because that's the focus 
of the three parts that we have in in verse 9. So let's take a look at verse 9, and let me talk a little bit about the grammar here, and a little bit just, just to kind of introduce it, and a little bit about what the focus is. Obviously, love is the focus. In fact, I'll ask Nate if he has some insights here. In the English, it is posed as something of a encouragement. Let love be without hypocrisy. It's posed more like a command, you might even say, or an imperative. But in the Greek text, we have a little bit of a problem in that throughout verses 9 through 13, there is not a single finite verb. There's no verb. So it kind of makes it a little, uh, I don't know if it's, it's not so unusual in Greek, but I guess a little striking there. So there's not a single verb. In fact, if you just kind of analyze a little bit of the grammar, you're going to find out that there's a series of several participles. No verb, but uh, at least 10 participles from verse 9 through 13. And I counted about 12, 12 nouns. There's a few prepositional phrases, but there's not. The point I'm making is there's no single verb. And the best that I can tell is I think in some cases, and this is probably an example, uh, what do you think, Nate? Probably an example where a participle can take an imperatival idea. In other words, it can take the idea of a little bit of a encouragement, at least, if not a command. At least that's the way the translators are taking it, and I think that's a legitimate way of doing it. So, Right off the bat, all you have are two nouns. You have love and you have without hypocrisy. No verb. So the let be there is inserted by the translators to kind of make or make good sense out of it. And it's framed. And because of the context, I think it makes a lot of sense that uh, we have encouragement here to living out something. And in this case, living out love. And then he's going to focus on uh a negative without hypocrisy. What do you think, Nate? Do you have any insights further than those comments? Then it's followed by two participles that I think modify. There's Nate. So sorry about that. Yeah, no, I don't have anything much more to say about than what you said. Okay. <laughs> I think well, you got it the basis. Okay. Just to make you aware. Uh, the, the translators are taking a little bit of liberty in all these passages, 9 through 13. I haven't looked at the details from 14 on, but that's the case of these five verses, at least. There's no verb in any of these. So all of the verbs that are supplied are supplied by the translators. And I'm not arguing with them. I, I think you have to kind of make it translatable. And I think what, uh, what we do have is what the translators have given us in terms of an encouragement. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by the grammar here because we want to focus on the main emphasis here. And the main emphasis is love. Again, it, it's not clear, but grammatically, participles are like adjectives or adjectival verbal ideas, I guess you could describe them. So they they describe or they modify usually the main verb, but since there's no main verb, they modify the, the two words that is the main part of this sentence here, love and without hypocrisy. And uh, we would say it would uh, modify, obviously, this whole idea, let love be without hypocrisy, and then modifying that, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So we'll, we'll kind of add on to that. But let's take a close look at the main thrust of the encouragement here. And I think it's put first because this is the priority. And in, in other words, if you're focused on others within the body of Christ and their needs and ministering to them, that's what love is all about. Rather than the focus on our giftedness and our individuality and our uniqueness, then I think that's what God intends and that's what it means to be a living and holy sacrifice. So 
The main thing that uh, anyone should observe should be the exercise of love. And I've chosen, even though I think verse 10 may give us, well, it kind of adds a different dimension of love or a different kind of love. But most of the commentators see, in fact, some of them see no no relationship or little relationship other than Paul stringing together a list, you might say, of encouragements and or exhortations. I think there's probably a closer relationship, and I'm not saying that love is kind of the overshadowing feature here, but I've chosen, if you notice on your outline sheet, to in fact see even the other parts that may be distinct as related to this love that we have here, God's agape love. And that's right. that's the word here. Jim? Well, uh, would it be, and Nate, too, uh, would it be uh, legitimate to say, to, to kind of think of this as uh, almost as if Paul's raising his voice, because uh, where love is concerned, it's the first word yes. uh, there. So there, that would be you know, would be emphasized. Absolutely. I think it is emphasized, just the fact that it's at the very beginning, you know, not only of the sentence, but of the whole remaining chapter. So, yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. Another thing to keep note is what does Paul do in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about spiritual gifts in relationship to love? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, First. I didn't hear the last part there, Jeff. I just said in First uh, Corinthians 13, love is the priority. Yeah, it's at the heart. In fact, you have chapter 12, he deals with gifts, and then he says, I'm going to show you a greater way, and then he spends a whole chapter, chapter 13, dealing with the whole agape love, and then once he's kind of established that, then he goes back to discussing some of the abuses of gifts. Mary Lee, do you have a comment? Yeah, I, I was. I was just thinking that, that I think that here's a suggestion that the very essence of the Godhead is love. Yes. And Paul is trying trying to use words to give a picture of what goes on in the relationship of love within the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where there is not striving, where there is not... Um, anything for oneself, but they are fully loving each other in every aspect as he has laid out here, doing each other in zeal, giving preference to one another. That is the relationship that has existed since, since it has existed within the Godhead. And Paul is trying to give us, I think, the picture of what that love is like because we don't understand it. Yeah. And uh, our tendency is the very opposite. The the tendency is to focus on self. Yeah, yeah. And I think there hey, is right. a there is a relationship, and I think it relates somewhat to what uh, Paul does in in First uh, Corinthians. Steve. Yeah. So, and then when I think of that word hypocrisy, I think uh, kids are tuned into that maybe more than anybody of the you know do what I do. Uh, instead of do what I say type of interaction, uh, you, you know, we, we see evidence of hypocrisy throughout the Gospels when uh, they ask Jesus a question, and it's uh, brought to the surface, it's uh, uh, identified, I mean, the hypocrisy. Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah, and we'll we'll uh, expand upon that and look at some other passages as well. In fact, I'm going to have some of you read. Would somebody look up? I need uh, four, actually five readers. If somebody would look up First John, anyone want to volunteer? And somebody, I got it. Okay, I got it. Was that Katie volunteering? Why don't you look up John, the Gospel of John, John 13, First John 4? Would somebody look up? Who else has got their mic open? No one yet. Second uh, Corinthians six. Wait, who's that? Who's, who's doing the first one? That was, somebody else said that they beat me to the punch. Okay, but I'll take I'll take a passage. 
Take uh, John 13, and I think... Shall I do 1 John 4? Yeah. Mary Lee can do 1 John 4. Somebody do 2 Corinthians 6. I will. Sharon, and 1 Peter 1. Who's got... Wants to do 1 Peter 1? Well, think about it. We'll come back. First of all... I'll do 1 Peter 1. Who is that? Laurel. Laurel. Okay. 1 Peter 1. Let's start off with 1 John 4, and I'll give you the verse in a moment. If uh, you're noticing on the outline sheet, I've got nine characteristics of agape love, and some of them, I think, well, some of them are directly related to the word, and some of them are related to what we have in the passage here. I think you can view them, at least, even if they may be somewhat independent. You can at least view them as components or characteristics of agape love. So let's start with the first one, and there's First John 4, 7 through 12. Mary Lee, got it? All right. First John 4, 7 through 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Okay, we could take a couple of Sundays just on that passage alone to develop the idea of love being supernatural in every aspect of it. It's from God. That's what the passage makes clear. And God is love. In fact, that's what Mary Lee was bringing out at the very beginning. So this comes from just the very word, just agape itself, just the meaning of the word and the essence of it. It's from God. So I kind of summarize all of that by describing it as supernatural. In fact, you could even say in that passage, it is unconditional as well. But John 13, 34 and 35, Katie, do you want to read that one? I think the stress on it is the unconditional aspect of it. 34 and 35 yes a new a new command i give you love one another as i have loved you so you must love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another okay and at the very beginning there if you remember there's old testament encouragements to love but love your neighbor as what as yourself And Jesus introduces a new component to it, love as he has loved. And what is the occasion of these passages in John, beginning in 13, all the way to crucifixion? This is the night before he sacrifices or he is sacrificed on the cross voluntarily. So, Loving in the way that he loves is an unconditional love. Uh, Now, there's some other components in there as well. I think the supernatural aspect as well. But uh, I think one of the things in the passage is the unconditional aspect. And then our passage, along with that, not only does the word, I think, convey this supernatural and unconditional aspect, but it also specifically talks about an unhypocritical love or without hypocrisy. It's one word in the Greek text. And we can read 2 Corinthians 6, 6. Laurel, do you have that one? No. Or Sharon has that one. Uh, yes. 2 Corinthians 6, 6. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Genuine love starts off with purity, so unhypocritical, genuine, unfeigned, you might say, love that uh, is real, Corinthians 6, 6. In fact, you got to read the whole chapter because it talks a lot about what Paul does. 
This word genuine is the same one as the one used for hypocrisy. Yes, identical same word, exactly. So also 1 Peter 1.22, Laurel's got that one. By obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, etc. Okay, and notice the context of purity and unhypocritical, same word again, genuineness, same idea. So I think what he's getting at here, it's easy to uh, to fake it, I guess you could say. It's easy to, say, show up in a congregation and put on a face of love and not the reality of it. And we have at least these three passages that uh, stress the genuineness of it. And that's part of what Paul begins with, with here. Now, another way where it's hypocritical is we may give the, the sense that we're exercising. Remember, it's in the context of spiritual gifts. The idea or the impression that we're exercising our gifts, and it can be done rather than for the benefit of the body, it can be done in a hypocritical way in terms of building oneself up. And I think that's the focus of Paul in 1 Corinthians and also here in, in the Romans passage dealing with, with spiritual gifts. So it's without hypocrisy. Now, you might think, well, how is it related to abhorring evil? What does that have to do with love? That almost seems, in fact, you could even use the word hate. What is evil here? What does that have to do with love? And like I said, grammatically, it's a participle that modifies the main clause. And I think there is a direct relationship. And I think we can illustrate it in that unhypocritical or genuine or pure love does not accept evil. And in relating to one another, we don't accept one another's sin but we deal with them in a loving way in dealing with them and dealing with their sin. So we can abhor and even hate evil. Now, kind of a, an obvious example that we can use here in our culture and even within the, the church, there's this idea that uh, you, when you love someone, you, you just take them as they are. Now you do. I don't, I'm not arguing against that. But a fine line is not drawn between the sin and the sinner. We are to love the sinner, but we can abhor the, the sin. And the obvious example here is the whole deviant sexual activity that is rampant around our culture and uh, all of the ideas. We can, we can hate homosexuality and lesbianism, but at the same time, we can love the lesbian and the homosexual, and Ray. and how to do that is not always easy. But uh, that's I think what is part of what this passage is instructing here. Mary Lee, go ahead. Yeah, I just think that Jesus demonstrated that with a woman quote caught in adultery. Exactly, and you have other examples. He loved as well. her absolutely, but he abhorred the sin that she was in, and in fact said, "Don't continue doing it." as she was departing from him. Right. Our tendency, however, sometimes is to overemphasize the abhorrence of it, and uh, it's easy for people to miss the love aspect. But we can love the person and still hate the sin. I think I've told you, several of you, that I've, I've had lesbian tenants, and those of you that know the story... I spent lots of time never raising the issue of lesbianism, but simply trying to express love towards them. And in that context, I won't give you the whole story, but was able to share the gospel with all three of them. I had kind of three in succession because one recommended uh, the next one, etc. And in sharing the gospel, they would raise the issue. And obviously, I think the Spirit was convicting them, but that was an objection. And, and I, you know, I, I kept pointing out, well, you keep raising the issue. 
And I kept broadening the idea of sin and identifying everyone as a sinner and not making the distinction. But I think I was able to show them enough love that I was able to share the gospel with uh, each of them. But we can do that. We can uh, abhor and hate evil because evil does damage. Evil does damage to those that are involved in it. Um, Who was that? Katie or was that? uh, That was me, uh, Denise. Denise. One of the things that struck me is that that's who God is to all of us. Yes. He loved us while we were sinners. He didn't love the sin, but he loved the sinners. And not only did he love us, but he also started the process of changing us into the image of his son, Jesus. Yes. And in fact, the Bible is very clear. Proverbs, what is it? Chapter 6, where it says that God hates six things, and it lists them. And then it says, no, he hates seven of them. So God hates evil because it destroys, and we can hate evil as well. But we need a little bit of wisdom to genuinely love. Katie. So um, in your own personal opinion, if you you owned a bakery and there was a a lesbian couple that wanted a cake baked, I mean, would we go ahead and use that as an opportunity to share the gospel, but still bake the cake? I mean, I, it's hard to, I don't know, where do you, where do you draw the line? Cause I mean, yeah. you want to love on, them, but yeah, well, uh, it, yeah, um, yeah. that's a, that, that, I think that's an individual decision that a person has to make given the circumstance. In other words, you know, the court case that, made the headlines, uh, I don't have a problem with the, the owners that rejected it and took a stand. They were abhorring evil, but I could envision a circumstance where you're talking about where the person isn't doing it in order to make a court case and to make a big spectacle out of it. The person is just coming in unknowing and perhaps it might be an opportunity. So, yeah, I think it's an individual thing. I think you have to evaluate each circumstance. Yeah. Uh, I see. Is that Bill? We have to to remember that uh, Christianity is all about a relationship with the living Lord and not a set of rules. Yes. Right. Yeah, and each circumstance is going to be different and unique. And in our relationship, We seek the leading of the Lord in every circumstance. I think in terms of this touchy area, we might lean in the area of expressing love, unless it's very clear the Lord wants us to take a stand, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Does that answer your question? In other words, it's a no answer. (laughs) Didn't really. Yeah, but I like your perspective and I like your example. Um, It's very encouraging with the, the tenants that you had and it, um, you know, it just brings out a, a new perspective and just highlights um, sharing the love of Christ with others. So I, I really appreciate that. Now here's the balance also is another participle that does the same thing as the first one, cling to what is good. Now it's, it's a participial phrase there. There's participle and a noun there. Cling to what is inherently good is the Greek word there. There's a couple of words in the Greek. So there's the two, but focus on the clinging. That's the same identical word that Paul uses in a husband and wife relationship of cleaving or clinging or the oneness idea. So it's a very strong word. Paul uses it to describe that marriage relationship. Cling to what is good. This but, word um, is from the word for glue. Yeah, it has the idea of to glue two things together, bond them together. So bond yourself, glue yourself, intimately cling to that which is good. That's the balance. And you might use, what is it, Philippians 4 verse 8, where you seek whatever good may be there, camp on it. And using the same example of dealing with homosexuals and lesbians, there there may be things within that context that you can cling to that uh, will encourage a relationship, as Bill is pointing out. 
So verse 10, that's verse 9. Part of love is being devoted to one another. I think that's part of what we have here. Devoted to one another. We have an interesting combination of words here that are related to love, but the words are related to a different kind or at least a different word in the Greek text for love. And I'll show you the words, the two parts here, be devoted. And then again, in the Greek text, there's no verb. We have another sentence to one another in brotherly love. You're inserting a little bit of a exhortation here that I think is indicated by the participle. There's a participial phrase here that encourages this, but there's no verb. We just have the word for devoted and the word for brotherly love. And the first one, the devotion, notice how it starts, philostorgas, philostorgas, what do you see at the very beginning of that, those of you that know a little bit of a Greek, in terms of words for love? We have agape, and we have what? Phileo. Phileo. Very good. Who is that? Phileo. Okay. That translates this word here, so it's related to this idea of pursuing or devotion, that whole idea along with the idea of love. Then the brotherly love, I think most of you are familiar with Philadelphia, which is the city of, of brotherly love. The name comes obviously from the Greek word, and it has the idea of family or love within brothers and sisters or brotherly love, has that idea. Occurs five times, the noun form. We have a verb form that we were just discussing, phileo, quite common in the New Testament. 24 times. Most theologians think that it has more of an emotional element to it, more of a family element to it, whereas the agape, not that it doesn't have a relationship, but it has more the, uh, what's the word, uh, unconditional aspect to it without necessarily the emotional component. Not that it's missing, but that's not the emphasis of the word. This one would emphasize the more the emotional aspect. So both words begin with the little philo, storgas, and philadelphia from phileo or philos, the, the Greek noun form. So this is, uh, we could add another component here, a family love, you might say. And would somebody look up the First John passage? Who had First John? Do you still have your finger in... Uh, First John, that was, uh, I'm forgetting now, was that Mary Lee? Yes, I have it right here. <clears throat> Read verse 14. Verse 14 says, 3, 3.14. 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Okay, so love of the brothers. That's what we have in the Romans passage. It's brotherly love or Philadelphia. That's 1210 there. So that's another element or component of, I think, biblical love. Biblical love hates evil and at the same time loves the sinner with the priority of loving the sinner without diminishing a hatred for evil because we know and using the example of the homosexual lifestyle, it's a destructive lifestyle. But all sin is. In other words, if we're converted out of alcoholism, we want to encourage an individual to uh, flee from that because that just destroys not only the physical life, but it destroys the spiritual life as well. So whatever the sin may be, pride or whatever. Uh, and by the way, pride is one of the things that God hates. Mary Lee. I was just going to say, it's not the obvious sins that we can see, but criticalness and, and selfishness. And uh, there's so much stuff that goes on in our own lives that isn't immediately obvious, but is as destructive to our souls as some of the very obvious ones. Yes. Yeah. And we're unaware of them. That's the whole problem. Right. Now, we're quick to see them in others, however, but... 
we're blind to seeing them in ourselves. So family love, or you might even say more intimate or more emotional relationships, this is the kinds of things that should be on display as we minister to one another and have relationships with one another. And what follows here is we have, and by the way, this is the the uh, prepositional phrase, give preference to one another in honor. So this modifies the first part. Translators make it, uh, break it up into a, I guess, what would you call it? A dependent clause, I guess, but it's actually a participle modifying the devoting. And when you're devoting, then you give preference to one another in honor. In other words, elevate them, honor them, bless them. And I think the heart of the entire verse is an unselfish love that Mary Lee and others of you have already brought out. So you could say that an aspect of agape love is illustrated by verse 10 as well, in that it is an unselfish love. It's a love that seeks the object of love. And First Peter 4 who had the first Peter passage before? Do you still have your finger there? First Peter 4, 8. I have that if the other reader doesn't. Go ahead, Connie. 4, 8. I'm sorry. First and Peter 4, 8. Things, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Okay. That goes along with everything we've been talking about. It's fervent, active, unselfish, a love that unconditional, unhypocritical, and even an emotional love, a fervent love. So it's an unselfish love. And then verse 11, I think we have a series, uh, those first two I've already mentioned, nine is kind of a standalone sentence, even though it doesn't have a verb. Ten, similarly, standalone uh, with only a participle. Now, Maybe you can help me with this one. The way I've aligned it, just to kind of bring out the grammar, is encouraging participles. And we have what you could consider one long sentence from verse 11 all the way through verse 13, kind of a series of participles with no verb and only one noun as part of what we might consider the main grammatical element or the, the main clause. So let's take a look at the series of participles. And uh, it begins with not lagging behind in diligence. Diligent service. Now, it could stand alone, but uh, I've tried to find a relationship to love as well. Diligent service, not lagging behind in diligence. Main idea there. An active, the opposite of laziness is the idea of the, the word there, the participle that we're, we're looking at here. So it's an active working, you might say, active love. And we'll expand it when we, in fact, somebody look up 1 Corinthians 13 and we'll look at things in it. It's also fervent in spirit. So it, you might say, has some uh, emotion to it. The word there actually has the idea of something boiling over. So the idea of something bubbling, boiling, burning even. Now, the translators translate it as in your in your spirit in other words as part of your makeup i think the i think some versions and some translators take it as the fervent in the holy spirit because it resembles a phrase that paul uses elsewhere when he refers to the holy spirit but i think in this context i, I think the translators got it right in uh, lowercase spirit rather than capital s spirit at any rate it's this emotional element to it. So even though agape love, and I don't want to say it's more detached, but I think it does not uh, omit the emotional aspect as well. And I think certainly we shouldn't as well as encouraged here. And then we have another participle, serving the Lord. Now, 
Remember the context we're talking about within the midst of the body and the exercise of spiritual gifts. As we exercise them, we're, we're diligent in them. We're diligent in our ministry. We're diligent in our love. We're diligent in our relationships. And it's a excitement. We have an excitement about the things that God is doing amongst us. And uh, in the context, we're, we're serving the Lord. So that's why on the outline, I call it diligent service, trying to summarize all of uh, verse 11. And then uh, who's got 1 Corinthians 13? Ray. Go ahead, Denise. Just start reading the first three verses. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Okay, notice, notice in the passage, I can have everything external. I can have everything visible. I can have every gift even. And if I don't have love, I have nothing. So here's kind of a contrast of having everything. And at the same time, if I have lacking in love, I have nothing. And then we won't take the time, but just start off, read a couple of verses. Uh, what is it? Verse four and five, maybe in that same chapter, Denise. And okay. notice that all of these are actions. Uh, they're well, not They're not emotions. All of these are things that we, we can do. Go love ahead. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, nor does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Okay, and you can go on and on and on and on and throughout the chapter where it describes what love is, it describes it in terms of actions. And I think that's the focus of verse 11 in the Romans passage, not lagging behind in diligence. In other words, it's active, it's uh, fervent in spirit, and it is in actively involved in uh, serving the Lord. And then verse 12, rejoicing in suffering. We're going to have opposition, and we will have opposition, I think, within the body of Christ. And in that context, rejoicing in hope, the series of participles continues. In fact, it's going to go all the way through the end of 13, rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation. I kind of lump these three together. They seem to go together because when you're suffering, you need to focus on uh, the future, the hope. Uh, you need to focus on when God releases us from the tribulation. And in that hope, we are able to persevere in the midst of that tribulation. And the essential element that we need to keep is uh, devotion to prayer because it's the Lord that uh, rescues us out of tribulation and he has a purpose of us being in the midst of it. So I think all of these verses do work together and I think there is some relationship and we might even say that uh, they even relate to love and we might say that love is enduring. It endures hardship, persecution, difficulty, Biblical love does not get wrapped up in self-focus and concern for itself, but it endures even uh, hardship and persecution. And Denise, do you have verse 8 there? 13.8, 1 Corinthians 13.8. Love does not fail, but, there is, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Okay, and then it says love remains in the next verse, but it endures, and it's in the context of 1 Corinthians 13. So we could say that biblical love is enduring, and let's close real quickly. We won't have time to develop it too much, but love is actively meeting needs, and again, we have a series of participles contributing to the needs of the saints, 
So it's costly, you might say. It's going to take commitment in terms of giving up that that we cling to and looking at the needs of the believer as opposed to our own. Newell, in his commentary, says to make another's necessities one's own as to relieve them, relieving the necessities of another. And then we have practicing hospitality, which we can expand upon that uh, next week. The need and the importance of hospitality, not only in the first century, but in our culture. And we might summarize the verse, verse 13, actually 11 through 13, biblical love is sacrificial. Going back to John 13, it is Christ-like. It's the love that Christ has for us. It's sacrificial. And an example of that would be John 15, 13. We'll look that one up next time. So I've given you nine components or characteristics, some of them illustrated by the passage, some of them inherent in the meaning of the word. Biblical love is supernatural. Biblical love is unconditional, unhypocritical. It hates evil and loves the sinner. Has a family element to it, an emotional element, like a family love. It's unselfish. It takes action. It is enduring. And then uh, finally here, it is sacrificial. And we can close with an application here. Church involvement in the context of the passage, is not just attendance, but it involves the exercise of gifts, and it involves loving relationships. So that's Romans 12, 9 through 13, trying to put, put it all together for you. Well, let's have a time of prayer. Connie, you said the Pertzers are the ones that we have on our schedule here, our list. Yes, indeed. Do you have any other updates or anybody have updates? On us? Should we give an update yep. on us? Yeah, you should. <laughs> um, well, you could pray for, we're doing well. You could pray for Ruth Ann's sister right now is getting a C-section. She's a 35 week. Um, and so it's a little early that the everything goes well and the baby um, can nurse well when he or she is born. Um, and then we could pray for, for me and the, my class. I'm teaching Romans to it's three groups combined into one. Pray that, that goes well. Are you doing it zoom or are you be able to do it live? Yeah, we're doing it zoom. Okay. We have students that are in the interior of the country and out of the country. So the seminary is still all online. Because of the COVID. Okay. You guys and haven't been exposed? I don't know. Oh, you don't know? <laughs> but there, we've had some strange illnesses at different points, so it, it could be that we had it, but nothing that would have caused significant health issues. Okay. Working. On, and I don't see her on unless there's a name I don't recognize here. Uh, Ray? Yes. Can I ask Connie how Darla is doing? Yes. Darla is actually um, headed home. She rang the bell. Um, they're going to be releasing her. Uh, she is in a wheelchair. Uh, her husband and sons built a ramp up to their front door. Um, so she has lots of rehab yet to go, but she is going to be able to. Javen said that she would be home after the ninth. Um, but then I saw a Facebook video that she might be be being released a little earlier. So continue to pray for them. And there is a Take Them a Meals website if anyone wants to participate that way as far as practicing hospitality. Okay. Ooh. Any other updates on prayer? I think that uh, when I was in the church preaching or conducting the service last week that it went pretty well. Praise the Lord. And it was all about fellowship from First John 1 so for two, two sessions. Great. And uh, so that, I think, worked out okay. Great. Now I can go back to being the self-effacing regular old member of the church. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's an answer to right. prayer. 
Ray, just a quick update on my brother, Tim. Great. He's the one that he has brain cancer, but he became a believer. He had surgery, and um, the surgery went well. He's home. He's walking, um, and he's going to be going into chemo in a few weeks. So I, I guess our prayer would be um, just the his belief would spread to God would use that to affect other family members. His wife? Yeah, his wife and others. kids. Yeah. yeah, okay, great, great. So you're pretty confirmed that he trusted the Lord then? Well, you know, I, I send him scripture, and he was really, um, I, I text him his way, and he was really uh, open, and thank you, and from my last talk with him. Um, but then since the surgery, he hasn't responded, but I think that might do to be due to the surgery and not the lack of interest or right. whatever. Right. Good. Well, let's do it and pray as you feel led. And when we're done, I'll close it off. And one more, I, I pray that you are with Ruth Ann's sister right now. Um, during her C-section, I just pray that you guide the, the doctor's hands and uh, just bless her with a, a wonderful nursing staff to um, guide her through the recovery. Uh, just pray that the baby is healthy and um, takes on to nursing right away and that you just keep them healthy in general um, at the hospital and that they're able to come home uh, as quickly as possible. Just thank you for new life. Um, and I uh, just pray that you uh, uh, bless their family, Lord. And Father, I agree with those things. Thank you.